0: We're in the fourth week of Advent together, and so for the last three weeks, we've been preparing along with the whole church uh, for Jesus' first coming and for a second coming. And the point of Advent is actually um, to make us hungry for Jesus, um, to actually leave us thirsty for more of him, um, to leave us actually um, wrestling with our deep sense of unfulfillment because even though Jesus has come, everything that he promised you has not been fulfilled until he returns again. And the difficulty with all this longing and this waiting, of course, is that it's so distracting right now, right? There's um, holiday food to buy, cookies to bake, um, guests to host, or if you aren't hosting guests, figure out where you're going to be hosted, if you're working right, this is a crazy season where you're all pushing really hard because you know if things don't get done in about the next three or four days, nothing is going to happen until the new year, right? Everything is grinding to a halt, so the vast, there are vast amounts of email being shoveled into my inbox um, in anticipation of Monday right now. If you have children, it's a crazy season because not only are they like, can I get this? What are we going to give this person? But school has become totally disrupted as well. So at least for my kids, there's been field trips. um, There's a pajama party coming out. There are cookie exchanges. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. I'm still trying to get all this right. It's, It's crazy out there. And Advent is the chance for us to stop to take a deep breath to be reminded of everything we don't yet have without getting distracted with all the things that you might be getting on Christmas and all that we're longing and waiting for, even though deadlines are beginning to approach, right? Advent's a season for us to pause To imagine what it would be like if you were in Israel before Jesus came and that your sense was God had been silent for 400 years and you as a people had been mowed over by empire after empire after empire until you were barely recognizable. You had no control over your political life, over your spiritual future, but as far as you could tell, God left during the exile and hadn't come back. If you're the people of Israel, you're wondering when will we know what God promises in the Old Testament, right? Where there'd be justice and righteousness, where the poor would be fed, where the blind would see, where there'd be hope again. And if you can connect to that longing, then, right, you can connect to the longings that shape all of us right now. Because I don't know about you, but um, just reading the week's news makes me ask those questions. Last Sunday, um, There was a bombing at a church in Cairo, and dozens were killed. And this morning in Aleppo, hundreds may die, and thousands remain trapped. In a snowy, cold weekend here in New York City, I wonder how many people died of exposure as homeless people continue to huddle in subway stations and on air vents, hoping to stay warm. I think about some of us for whom the coming holiday and family reunion is actually a source of pain. Because you're walking into a family situation where there is no peace and where people may be polite, but it's not going to be pleasant. Or some of you are thinking, yeah, it's all about coming home and family. And some of us are thinking about people who won't be coming home today, this week. In particular, specific people who will never come back to us. And if you can tap into that longing, right? That sense of, this isn't how it should be, then you're being prepared. You're being prepared to celebrate Christmas because we're in the fasting before the feasting, right? Because Advent, historically for the church, has been a penitential fasting kind of season to make us aware of our deepest longings and desires, our thirsts and our hungers, so we can celebrate Jesus' first coming and anticipate a second. And the weird thing about Jesus' coming, of course, is that it's always totally unexpected because nobody expected he would come the first time, and we're promised in Scripture nobody's going to know when he comes the second time. So how do you prepare yourself to deal with this kind of um, uncertainty about how God interrupts your life? Because the reality is God delights in interrupting our lives, and he does it when we can't anticipate it, when we don't know about it, and when we're completely unready. So how do we prepare ourselves for God to break into the ordinariness and the unworthiness of our religious experiences and our relationships and then change them forever? This week, I want us to look at a passage in Luke. It's really familiar because I think the story of how Mary hears about the coming of Jesus will prepare us to um, embrace the foolishness of embracing God's interruptions and to participate in the foolishness of Christmas itself. Let's look together. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly, sorry, troubled uh, by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. When we think about the story, partially because of the way art and paintings and movies have portrayed it, right, we usually think of something like this. Mary resplendent in these beautiful robes, right? She's so holy, even before the announcement begins, a halo has already started to form around her head. She's poised just so. Oh, you mean me? Right, and there's beautiful sunlight, and it's this beautiful scenery. It all seems so nice, so perfect, so serene and holy, so poised just so, and it's so not like it would have been, Right? The thing about Mary at this point of the story is how unremarkable, how unimportant, and how unnoticeable she really was at the time. Um, She's a young girl, about 14 or 15 maybe. She has no social status in Israel. She's not dressed in beautiful robes. She's probably working. Right? She's threshing, she's cooking, she's cleaning. She's doing what young girls about 15 or 16 are doing at the time. It's to this kind of person in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that God sent the angel Gabriel as a messenger to Mary, a virgin pledged to be David. In fact, he sends her to Nazareth, right? Nazareth, as Pete pointed out last week, and I think Rich pointed out a couple weeks before, is really nowhere. By New York City standards, it's the square states, somewhere over there, right? It's not even in a city in the square states. It's in the suburb of the suburb of the square state that you're in. It's a town that wouldn't even Starbucks wouldn't even bother opening up something on one corner, much less two. It doesn't have a stoplight, right? Nazareth is in the middle of nowhere. So not only is she a nobody, she's from nowhere. And she's doing what a lot of other girls her age, about 15 or 16, are doing. She's engaged, and she's ready to get married. She's going about her ordinary day. And then suddenly, an angel appears in her life. That's why Gabriel's greeting so troubles Mary, right? Um, An angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And I love the understatement of the lines that come next. Mary was greatly troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Right? I mean, what Mary basically does is like, Excuse me? You who are highly favored, who? Me? Here? Now? Doing this? She's done nothing to this point to attract God's attention, as far as we know. She's nobody. She's done nothing particular. There's no story about her childhood that makes her seem remarkable or particularly interesting. Um, She's done nothing particular to deserve God's favor. We don't hear about particular holiness, graciousness, or niceness in her life at this point. She's nobody, nowhere, doing nothing in particular. And yet God breaks into her life just then. And this is good news, this Advent season before Christmas, because this is exactly what God always seems to do, doesn't it? He chooses unsophisticated, unschooled fishermen to be his apostles. He chooses shepherds to be his witnesses. He chooses refugees to be his parents, adulterers to be his kings, murderers to be his apostles, and ordinary, sinful, befuddled people like you and me to be his witnesses here and now. God seems to like taking ordinary people as sinful and as conflicted as they are, and he goes, you are going to be the sign and wonder that I'm going to use to show the world that I'm alive. It's through your mouth that curses at one moment as you're in the subway, being pushed around, and in the next moment tries to sing a song of praise to God as you get to church. That same mouth I'm going to use to declare my truth. It's going to be at work and at home and at school and in your daily relationships that you are going to manifest the reality that the Holy Spirit is in you and among you and at work. This is astounding, foolish, and so hope-giving to us, isn't it? And why does God do this? You'll notice the angel doesn't say, don't be afraid, Mary, I've looked at your resume. You've done great work, right? I have, I've looked at your report card. You're doing excellent. Santa has really paid attention. You've been nice, not naughty, right? None of that. All that he says is this. You have found favor with God. God has chosen you. God loves you. He sees you in this obscure backwater. He knows who you are. And for all of us, this is good news because no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing right now, part of what Advent reminds us is God sees you. God knows you. God's chosen you. And God is intending to use you. Do not lose heart. And when God appears, we see the ordinary, average, boring day-to-day reality begin to bend and to shift around people who say yes to him and accept his call and begin to do something different so that the world begins to change. It's an ordinary, average woman who decides one day on a bus, I am not going to the back today. I'm sitting right here and I'm staying here. And God uses that ordinary, everyday place in obedience and begins to shift history in ways that we remember to this day, right? It's allowing a man who's in Korea during the Korean War to have his heart break at the um, malnourished orphans, and he says, not on my watch, not at this time. I will do what God has called me to do. And from that, Bob Pierce birthed the organization that we know as World Vision today. And millions of children live today because of that. It's the ordinary choices that you're going to make at school this week and in your workplaces as you think, should I say something about my faith or should I just let this amazing season where the majority of people would come to church if a Christian friend just invited them according to every survey that's done? Or should I just exchange a couple cookies and hope for the best? Right? How do we take this world pregnant with its possibilities in the average, ordinary ways that we experience them and prepare ourselves to say yes to whatever Jesus calls us to? What would it take for us to be prepared to say yes? Because God doesn't just interrupt our ordinary obscurity and anonymity. God also intends to interrupt our identity um, in a fundamental way. Think, Ben, a little bit again about Mary, right? The angel appears to her and says, you will conceive and give birth to a son. And Mary goes, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, we think of this as great news. Jesus is coming, but think of your are Mary. Think about what this does to who you think you are as you begin to interact with the people around you, right? Because as far as we can tell, for all that we don't know much about her, Mary's a pretty good girl. How do we know she's kind of a good girl type? One, she's marrying Joseph, who we know is law-abiding and righteous, right? The man reveres the scriptures. And so the only kind of girl who's going to marry a kind of guy like him is a girl who's a pretty good girl. We know she comes from a pretty good family, but Joseph is not going to marry into a family or to a daughter, who's a little shady, and we know by the way Mary prays, as we see later when she prays the Magnificat, right? My soul magnifies the Lord that nearly every word in that prayer is a quote from one of the Psalms that this woman knows the scriptures deeply and well, such that when she decides to pray, it's actually the words of scripture that begin to pour out of her as she constructs the Magnificat. Think about how this affects her identity. She's a good girl from a good family who knows how to say and do the good things, And before she's married, she's pregnant, especially in that culture. Think about how it begins to play with her identity and her relationships with people, right? Because think about how it affects her as a future wife. She hears this announcement, goes away for three months to be with her cousin Elizabeth, and then she comes back, and she's showing. What would people think and assume? What would Joseph be thinking assuming that she went to go visit Elizabeth? (laughs) He had a right to have her stoned to death for the equivalent of adultery. Think about what it would be like, not just as a future wife, but as a daughter, because you come from a pretty nice family. They're Levites of some sort, or at least her cousin married um, Levites. They're nice enough to marry into Joseph's family. What, how would her parents respond in a culture like that? Think about the town she's from, right? Nazareth is not so big that you can get away by hiding away a little bit, right? If you're showing, everybody knows what you're showing and why you're showing it and when you're showing it. Think about the rumors and the conversations that would happen. This too, right, is actually part of how Christ always seems to interrupt our lives. He loves disrupting relationships. In fact, later on in her life, Mary and her, and her sons will come to try to get Jesus because he's been preaching too much, doing a little too much ministry, and they think, he's a little crazy. So they come to bring him back home and give him some rest. And Jesus is preaching to a large crowd, and the guy comes over like, your mom's outside with your brothers. They want to take you home. And what both Mark and Luke talk about is that Jesus looks at the door right where Mary and his brothers are standing and he asks this question, who are my mother and my brothers? And he says this, the people who are my true mother and my true brothers are the people who listen to the word of God and do it. If you're his mom standing at the doorway, what do you hear at that moment? You may think you're my mom, that the true people who listen to my word and do it are really my mother and my brothers and my sisters. This is my family, right? You've been publicly dissed, shamed, and humiliated in front of a crowd. Jesus goes on, right? A man says, let me follow you. And Jesus says, great, come follow me. And the man says, okay, let me bury my father first. And Jesus goes, let the dead bury their own dead. Any man who loves his mother and father more than he loves me is not worthy of the kingdom of God. I haven't come to unite families. I've come to divide them right? I've come to separate father from son, mother from daughter. You all are going to have to relate to me first before you relate to one another, right? It's in part what we're doing here at church when we talk about emotionally healthy relationships and why you pursue those skills. It's not just to give you technique. It's actually to create space in our relationships that Jesus defines how we relate to one another and shapes how we relate to one another. From the simple things like what expectations do we have for family dinner this coming Christmas, to larger things and more intimate things like how we're going to relate in bed, right? It's that whole range that emotionally healthy skills are designed to say, how do we create space for God in those moments so that the Holy Spirit himself is mediating the ways that we relate to one another because God interrupts our relationships all the time. I wonder where God might be intending to interrupt your relationships this Christmas season. How is he trying to use you to disrupt the web of relationships that you're in? For some of us, it's probably your families as they begin to gather from low, near, and far over the next couple of days. As you walk into those family gatherings, how are you to be Christ's disruption in that place? Not just a relationally awkward disruption in those places, right? As you think about your workplaces, in this one season where people are actually thinking about spiritual things and what it means to be gracious, loving, kind, and generous, how are you meant to be a disruptive element in that place? Not obnoxious, but faithful. Because when God, we allow God to disrupt our relationships, the world begins to change. I think of a student um, named Anthony. Um, as you all know, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a, co- a ministry to college and university students. And Anthony um, is a senior on the baseball team at college, and he's had a tense relationship uh, with some of his teammates over time—some ridicule, um, some difficulty. But for the last few months, while he has been praying, he's had this deep sense God is preparing him for something. And so a few months ago, as he was in prayer, he felt like he heard God tell him, now is the time to share your faith with your teammates. And he's like, those guys? Like, do you know what they're like? I'm with them all the time, on the field, in the locker room. I'm like, them? But the next Sunday at church, he writes down a prayer request in his bulletin that he passes back to the pastors. Pray as I share my faith with my teammates this week. At the InterVarsity prayer meeting later that week, he's praying, and he felt like he heard the Lord say, I want you to preach on Romans 8 at this Friday's chapter meeting of InterVarsity, and I want you to invite your teammates to come. And as he's praying and his friends are praying, he has a vision from the Lord that he's going to give a call to faith, and people's hands are going to go up in the air, and they're going to come to faith. So he goes to his coach earlier that week, and he says, hey, um, I'm preaching at the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship meeting later this week, and um, I wonder if it would be okay if I invited some of my teammates to come and listen. His coach, being a good coach, goes, no problem, let me help you with this. And he goes to the team, and goes, Anthony's preaching on Friday, you're all required to go. <laughs> so Friday night comes, Anthony preaches, he gives a call to faith, and asks, if you want to give your life to Jesus, would you raise your hand? Seven hands go up in there from his teammates and his assistant coach. The next day, Anthony goes to brief his coach because he figures he better tell him what's been going on, and his coach engages him in a conversation about the gospel that goes on for months as he began spiritual exploration as well. You see, when we're open to allowing our relationships, our friendships, our family, our networks to be disrupted by God, the world begins to change. History begins to rearrange itself around the gospel and around Jesus, and we have the pleasure of being God's agents wherever we go. What would it take for us to be prepared to say yes when Jesus invites us to allow our relationships to be disrupted by him? Part of what's going on too, though, right, is it's her identity in terms of relationships, but it's really her innermost identity is at stake as well. For Mary, this is not just something she's doing out there. It's something she's doing deeply in here. Look again at verse 34, right? God essentially says to her, "Um, hey, I need to borrow your body. And not just like you doing something, but as a woman, I kind of need to borrow the deepest innermost parts of you, right? Jesus basically is going to commandeer your biology, your reproductive rights, the the organs that define you most clearly as a woman, and I'm going to use it for my own purposes. Will you trust me? Will you give me yourself, every part of your body for nine months? And of course, if you're actually a mom, you'll go, whoa, way longer than nine months. Right? Way, way longer than nine months is my body going to be used by this child. And Mary says, yes. And God seems to do this a lot, though we don't notice it, right? He takes the most core parts of our identities and says, will you give this to me? Will you trust me with it? Will you offer it to me? He does it to Joseph, in fact. Joseph is asked in this Christmas story, right, to give up the right to father his first child, his son. Now, in America today, thankfully, we love daughters as much as we love sons, and so it means less. But back in the day, and those of us who come from cultures which value firstborn children and sons a lot know exactly what I mean, to be told, your firstborn son won't be yours, right? If God is saying, Mary, I need you to do something for me with the innermost thing that makes you a woman, he's telling Joseph, I need you to not do something that's core to what it means to be a man in your society, Joseph. And the hardest thing about this, right, this abstention for Joseph, is that even as he's choosing not to do something with Mary, everybody else at the village thinks he already has, Right? Because the rest of the village will assume that Mary's early and unexpected pregnancy probably has a not-so-surprising cause, and it's him. Imagine how it feels for Joseph, right, to be a man who's been chased, who's been absent, who's been trying to honor God, and everybody in the village is going to assume he couldn't keep his pants up or his robe down. I'm not sure what happens (laughs) in that kind of a culture. Maybe even more important for Joseph, right, is that, think about it, he's really only a teenager too, right? He, like every teenager and every 20-something and 30-something and 40-something, right, is struggling with the difference between like hormones and holiness, right? And so think about Joseph, this teenager wrestling between hormones and holiness. Um, Even though he's going to take her into his home, because God asked him to, he's not going to take her like in that Harlequin romance-y kind of way. Um, and he's going to wait more, right? He's been abstinent. He's been chased. He's been waiting to get married, waiting for that day, waiting for that night, waiting. And God goes, I need you to wait longer. I need you to keep on waiting, Joseph. And um, she's going to be tantalizingly close to you, but still inaccessible until that child was born and she recovers. Joseph, can you wait for me? Right? God goes in right at the heart. Give me your identity. Give me who it means for you to be a man or a woman and trust me with it. Give me your identity as a person of color of every ethnicity and race. Give me your ethnic identity and trust me with it. Give me your sexuality and your orientation and trust me with it. Give it to me because I intend to use this for my glory and for my purposes. I think about one of my colleagues who's same-sex attracted, and I've had a friend, a, a different friend ask, why would you have somebody like that on staff within with varsity, And I said, because I can think of no better witness to the gospel than my friend who's same-sex attracted because... He struggles with different passions than some of us do, but he's giving his entire life to Jesus and trusting him right now. He's trusting him to say, I will obey scripture even though it's costly to me and live celibately. I'm gonna trust the body of Christ is gonna be community to me and I'm not going to be alone or live alone. I'm gonna trust that my body will be used for the glory of God and I will experience resurrection. His entire life is witness right now. Who better to work with a group of 40, 20 plus year olds then somebody who says my entire body will be a way to communicate the holiness, goodness, mercy, joy, and love of God, right? Are you ready if God were to say your core identity as a woman and mother, father and son, person of color, of any orientation, I will give it all and trust Jesus with it. What would it take for us to be prepared? To say yes when Jesus calls. Because if we're willing to do that, The world begins to change because look at who what mary does right the angel appears to mary and says um you will conceive and give birth to a son and you were to call him jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over jacob's descendants forever his kingdom will never end this child of yours mary You thought he would be obscure like you're obscure, but he will actually be God returning to earth. God left Israel when Jerusalem fell and God is returning now, Israel's long, wait in darkness and silence is over, God is speaking again because you are obedient and while not all of us will have the chance to birth the son of God, all of us have an opportunity to demonstrate what it looks like when God returns because that's what it means to be made in the image of God. In your workplaces wherever you are, you are a sign that God is at work. That God is alive and you are bringing his light and love and hope and peace to that place. In our marriages and in our families, we are a sign and wonder of what God is doing. If we are there, then God should be there. And in the ways that we forgive and reconcile love unconditionally and sacrificially, we are to demonstrate what it looks like when God returns to this earth. In our subways and in our communities, in the streets and neighborhoods, if we are there, then people should see that God is there too. In our acts of compassion, our protests against unrighteousness, if we are there, then God should be seen. What will it take for us to be ready to say yes so that God could be better revealed around us and among us? God always seems to disrupt our expectations, right? He told the Pharisees, you think you know the law. It's much harder than you ever thought. He told women who thought they weren't worthy to be witnesses at court, you will be the first witnesses at the resurrection. He told those who thought the Messiah was to come to bring political freedom, you have no idea of the great depths of freedom I'm about to offer you. The world will change because I'm there. What would it mean for us to be ready to say yes? I think Mary gives us an example of how to be prepared in this way. She says to what Gabriel says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her, right? She defines her core identity in this way. I am the Lord's servant. Tell me to go, I will go. Tell me to stay, I will stay. Tell me to preach against unrighteousness, I will do so, or tell me to quietly endure, I will do so. Tell me to confront the principalities and powers around racism and sex and money and power in our society, I will do so loudly or I will do so quietly. However you tell me, I will do it. Tell me to care about people in Syria, I will do it. Tell me to care about my sister who gets on my nerves every time I see her, I will do it. Whatever you call me to, my response is yes because I am the Lord's servant. And if you call me to it, then I'm committed to seeing it fulfilled. What would it take, brothers and sisters, to position ourselves this Advent season up to Christmas to say, Lord, your coming was to bring life and light and hope to a dark world. If you call me to participate, I will say yes. Your second coming will bring justice, righteousness, and peace where there is division, exploitation, and wrongdoing. And if you call me to confront it, I will say yes. How will we position ourselves to be witnesses to what Jesus is doing? Let me suggest it's really taking that same posture that Mary did. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. A prayer I wanna offer you that might position your heart in this way is a prayer that the Methodist Church has prayed um, in their New Year's Eve services that I've adopted and made part of my morning prayer, so I try to pray it daily. It's in your bulletin, um, and the words go like this. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O glorious and holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, And I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. I wonder if you might take this prayer and join me every morning and just offer it as a prayer to God, reflecting your commitment to shape your position and your passions, your purposes and your plans around whatever God has for you. On the flip side is how Mary responded, because this is really just an expansion of what she said, isn't it? I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. We all have really big challenges coming in the week ahead. It's going to be noisy and distracting, difficult, challenging, and joyous all at the same time. What would it look like if the body of Christ at this moment said, wherever I am, with whomever I am, and whoever I happen to be, I'm going to make myself fully available for God to interrupt and allow myself to be aligned to his purposes. What a gift to the world it would be this Christmas. Let me pray for us. Lord, extend your mercy to us in our distraction, despair, hope, and joy that we're attentive not just to the voices of the season, but attentive to your voice. So that when you choose to interrupt what we're doing and ask for our attention, like Mary, we would respond, yes. Amen. Amen.
1: Let's all stand together. Let's all stand. Let's sing in response, and uh, we'll close our service together amen the Lord calls you his own Just day I want to invite the prayer team to come to my left we have the Lord's table to my right and the reality is that God every single day multiple times a day will interrupt you he'll interrupt you through people through circumstances and the invitation our interruptions are often simply invitations for us to say, I am your servant. Lord, I am your servant. The reality is we all have our own plan for our lives. We all know what we want to do. We all have our agendas. And then we add God to our agenda. And we say, Lord, I want to make you the center of my life. And we add God on. What God is inviting us is not just for us to add him to the center of our lives. He's trying to add us to the center of his life. There's a big difference. That we are invited into God's bigger story and and he will go through uh any lengths to interrupt you so that you may participate in something bigger than yourself and the invitation out of these interruptions is simply yes lord i am your servant and so usually when interruptions come we don't say yes lord we go why lord why why is this child interrupting me again, you know? Why is this traffic? And yet the invitation might be this week as we approach Christmas to say, yes, I am your servant. In the mystery of these interruptions, in the sovereignty of these interruptions, Lord, give me a posture that says, yes, I'm open. May your will be done in me. And to get to that place often means that we need someone to pray with us and pray for us. This is why we close every gathering with a time of prayer. Because to get to this point of openness and sensitivity to the movement of God's spirit in us often requires it to be done in the context of community. We need someone to pray for us. And so maybe you've come in here, maybe God is interrupting your life and you need a heart to say yes. Maybe you've seen God's interruptions, but you've still have gone your own way. And today you, you're you repenting, you're coming back to God to say, Lord, I want to be a part of your story. We have a prayer team here. And to my right, we have the Lord's table. We'll be we coming, we take bread, and we dip it in the cup, reminding ourselves that we are part of a bigger story, that we are part of a story of one who was broken and bruised, poured out his life so that we might be whole and healed, and now serve in the world as healers, as reconcilers, because of his cross. And so, whether you come for prayer, whether you come to the table, God is interrupting you and this interruption is an invitation. You can come for whatever need you have, we'll stay as long as we need to, but as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If you're watching online, you might want to stay in front of your computers. Open your hands like this. We close every gathering like this because this is a sign of receiving. It's a posture of receiving. And we cannot give what we have not received. And so we end every gathering like this on Sunday mornings to say, Lord, essentially, I am your servant. Yes, Lord. And the hands that receive now becomes hands that bless. That we step out into the world, offering the good news that's available in Jesus Christ. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, like Mary, saying, yes, Lord, I am your servant. And when God interrupts you this week, may you see interruptions as invitations, invitations to allow this commitment to Jesus to deepen, to be open, to be sensitive to the ways that he's coming in this Advent season. And may in turn, may you be a blessing to the world around you. I bless everyone in this room today, and those watching online, and the strong, in the beautiful and the interrupting name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen.